us and be praying for that as well. So it's good to see you. It's wonderful. Um, it's much better than being here alone talking to myself. All right, so we're in Psalms today. We're going to start a survey on the Psalms. And uh, I'm going to give you an introduction and go first the introduction, then we're going to go through a few Psalms. And I'll explain that. I also want to pray, and when we pray, John Wilkerson is in Florida with his mother and stepdad who's on hospice and soon to go see the Lord now. And we also skip back here in the back in the orange shirt, Skip and Cheryl, her mother is 100 years old and is drawing near to her time, and, and so pray with me. Lord, we lift up John and his family, his stepdad, his mom, that you would just really be in the midst of that. Pour blessing out and, and take this gentleman home in the time that you've dictated is the best. And keep him and them during this time. Lord, we also pray for Cheryl and Skip and for Cheryl's mom that you would usher her. She's expressing songs and words of faith in Jesus. We pray that you would just take her home simply and, and peacefully, Lord. And, Lord, that you'd comfort all those. Continue to comfort Ann Lynn, Lord. The, the day is coming. The day is coming when we sing with the angels and the saints of old of a thousand generations as we sang. And how we long for that day. And we pray that between now and then for each one of us, you would use our lives for your glory. You said we shine as lights in a crooked and perverse uh, world, uh, Lord, so it's always been crooked and perverse without you when people are in darkness, but we pray you'd let our light shine in the darkness here, that it would be Jesus that shines out of our lives. Teach us that even more as we read the book of Psalms, in Jesus' name, amen. So this is a survey through Psalms is what we're going to begin doing, and I'm going to explain some things. So I love hymns. Don't you love the hymns of the 15th, 16th, 17th century, even 18th century, 1800s, excuse me? Uh, There's so many of them are God-centered rather than man-centered and all about how I feel. However, the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, both speak of God's glory and his greatness and have a lot of discussion of personal struggles, and they're filled with emotion. So when people say, I just like the hymns because they just are God-centered, like I used to do at one point, you get on these bents. And then I read the Psalms more and thought about it and said, that's kind of bogus. It's both. If every song, I tell the musicians, be careful, don't sing 10, 8, well, they do 10 songs. Don't do, don't do 10 songs in a row. I love what we do. Don't do five songs in a row that talk about how I feel, how I feel, how I feel. Do songs that I don't have to tell them, they know. Do songs about God's glory and who he is and all that, you know, and find your flow, but keep that in your mind. I, tell, I would always tell musicians that. But on the other hand, it is both. I mean, the Psalms are filled with loneliness, people who are lonely and expressing it, uh, their failure, anger that they have to deal with, grief false accusations against them, and on and on and on. Are you with me? Is that true? Yeah, if you've read them. Some people say, I read the Psalms, when I, and they find their one or two Psalms they love, and that's the only Psalm they read. <laughs> Psalms have a lot more than anything I'll mention. It's been said, the Psalms are where theology meets human experience. We see extreme sorrow and defeat. And then we see victory and joy. And sometimes it's right there in one Psalm. 
which is kind of like one of your own prayer times can happen to you. It's the largest book in the Bible because there's 150 separate individual songs by seven or more authors, which over, a, over several thousand years written, and the writers are Moses, who wrote one, David wrote 73, Asaph wrote 12, Korah's sons wrote 10, Solomon wrote two, He-Man, He-Man wrote one, and Ethan wrote one. A hundred of these uh, uh, psalms are signed by their author, are attributed clearly to an author, and 50 are anonymous. So they originally were compiled by David, we believe, as he, he, he put them together in a sense, and then written much more by Ezra, it's believed. And the strong emphasis is, of course, worship. Some people call it a workbook on worship, too, because you can worship God in your joy and your sorrow. That's the whole thing. So... David wrote many and sang these. So, and then all these guys that wrote these. So gentlemen in the room, the idea that men don't sing <laughs> and are not expressive in worship, where did that come from? Not the Bible. Not the Bible. All right. So the word is from the Greek word psalmos, which means, actually, Joel, you might have known this. Do you know what that means? I gotcha. To pluck, to pluck. Like, not to pluck a chicken, but to pluck an instrument. <laughs> you do that too, though. You guys have chickens. To pluck an instrument. And f 55 are, are, are identified as being written to the chief musician, which would be like us saying to the band leader. And also, there, there's a talk of wind instruments, flutes, trumpets, percussion, and again, I'm going to speak to Joel. Sorry, Joel, there's no mention of accordions in here. But uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. We love it. Most importantly, well, yeah, it's <laughs> most importantly, um, it speaks of being loud and joyful shouts of praise. Yeah. Psalm 150, verse 6, sing loudly and joyfully shouts of praise. So... Um, it's interesting that none of the melodies survived the ages. There's nobody that says, here's a psalm of David, and here's how he sang it. <laughs> nobody can do that. And I find that interesting. Uh, it kind of seems obvious because it's so long, but on the other hand, I wonder if that's a hint to us to let the music change with the times. Yeah. I do like the hymns. And I, you know, sometimes it's hard if you're singing a hymn that you know the way it goes and they've changed it, but, man, musicians got to be able to express music, too. I think that that's kind of cool. So it would be very hard to outline 150 psalms because they're not grouped in that way where they're all their focus is in order, like these ten are about this in a row in a row. By the way, if we did each individual psalm and we studied through each one, we'd be here for three years doing the psalms, so we're not going to do that. We're going to do a survey, and you'll just, we'll just see how this goes. Um, but uh, there are things that need explanation as we go, and I'll just mention imprecatory psalms. If you hear that term, it's the psalms where well, the word imprecatory means to curse. So that, that the writer calls God on God to defend him against his enemies. And there's 18 of those in the Psalms. And in Psalm 58:11, David explains the reason for his plea. 
uh, so that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges the earth. There'll be more on that as we go through them. And amazingly, before we get to the Psalms themselves, there are so many pictures and typology of Jesus Christ in the Psalms. It is not just a book of praising God, um, and I don't mean that it's mindless when you do, but just mindless just about how you feel and just about, oh, God is good. There is doctrine, doctrine, teaching, teaching in the Psalms, and there is great teaching and prophecy of Christ. Do you know that 40% of the Old Testament quotes that are quoted in the New Testament come from the book of Psalms? That's wild. That's crazy. They speak explicitly concerning Jesus. And Jesus himself said, and we'll put it up, in Luke 24, 44, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Jesus says as he's risen and walking on, as he's come to his disciples in his resurrected form after the road to Emmaus, sorry. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the what? The Psalms concerning me, Jesus said. Isn't that incredible? Very specific by him. The Psalms reveal the nature of Christ, his deity, his redemption, his rejection, his betrayal by Judas, his suffering on the cross, his death, and his resurrection. And his reign as king of kings and lord of lords. It's all spoken of in the Psalms. To study Jesus is to study the Psalms. So, let's begin and see if we can do Psalms 1 through 5 in the way that I'm going to do it. And I got the easy ones. We probably won't be able to do five uh, each week. Psalm 1, and I will read it all. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So, no author known here. Blessed, happy, full of joy is the person who does this. What is it? It's what not to do first. Who does not. Well, that sounds like a downer. When, when not to do something is a blessing, you bet it is. Don't put your hand on a hot red stove element. <laughs> That's a blessing to not do, isn't it? You ever put your hand on something hot and burned your hand? Yeah. Boundaries protect. They're not only keep us from bad, but they're a way to, in scripturally, they're a way to direct us to the good, to gain insight, counsel, and direction. You have to start by not, in a sense, you have to start by not listening 
to ungodly counsel, which you can find anywhere, which moves to cynicism and scorn for God's word. Uh, You know, ungodly counsel means counsel that comes from the heart of man without relationship to God. Now, we're not talking about is my mechanic a Christian? Because if he isn't a Christian and he tells me I need new spark plugs, or if we still use those, um, I'm not going to do it because he's ungodly. No, no, no. You could. <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about counsel on moral values on how to live your life. Are you with me? That's that's count God, ungodliness is the thought process that ignores or rebels against God not just rebels directly against him, ignores him. Because if you ignore him, you are in rebellion to him. So to know what is ungodly, don't you also have to know what is godly? Yeah, his delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates day and night. And the word meditation in Scripture is to ponder, consider, take time, let it kind of like a cow ruminates through its four stomachs that we ruminate on God's word and spend time in in the process of applying it to our life, asking the Lord to reveal to us things that we don't understand, helping us to overcome things that we can't seem to overcome that are written clearly for us there. You know, the law of the Lord, is it harsh and dry? No, not really. And, And anyway, a tree, like this tree by the river of waters, you know, a tree takes decomposing dirt and water and produces fruit. Isn't it amazing? I mean, I know that there was the comedian who said he he loves, uh, you know, the whole bacon one. And then he goes, oh, a pig is so great because it can take an apple, which is basically garbage, and turn it into bacon. (laughs) But but he had it backwards, really. A, A piece of fruit, an apple, is funny, but an apple is a beautiful thing. A piece of fruit's a beautiful thing, and it comes from decomposing dirt going up through a tree. So you break things down and you learn to apply them in your life. And God's word is true and right and holy, even in the Old Testament, 100%. So we can, uh, how much more that we can drink of the New Testament and the grace of God that's been revealed to us and become fruitful in our lives. It will lead to our eternal destiny being fulfilled. So that's not only here and now, but forever. Okay, so what is the counsel of the ungodly? I kind of jumped ahead of myself, didn't I, when I started talking about it. You try this. (laughs) Psalm 2, what is the counsel of the godly, ungodly? I'm glad you asked. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them with his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, O you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. So, of course, every one of these psalms has far more than I would develop in one Sunday morning if I'm going to do more than one, and that's the goal. You can read it and ponder the whole thing, but even kings find themselves, and really it's kind of consistent through history that they find themselves rebelling against God, the kingdoms of man. There are leaders of, who are Christians or godly men in the Old Testament that led, but it's few and far between even in Israel, all right? So if even in Israel, you, you understand why I'm emphasizing so intently there. These are the people that had God's law and God's word. Even in Israel, they were few and far between. So if that's true, just think about the kings of the earth in the history of man. Kings represent the rebellion of Satan and the rebellion of humans, and they do it well. <laughs> they do it really well. It's just the way it is. But notice that he didn't just slam them and say, I'm just going to laugh. He's calling them to repentance. So he says, when, it's where it all starts, rebellion. We don't need God. We don't need him. He is restrictive. He is restrictive. He's trying to, he's trying to, to, to steal my joy in life. He's weak, and we can break his bonds. We can do whatever we want to do. Oh, and that is working out swimmingly. He, he shall laugh them to scorn. It's, it's like this. Galatians 6, 7 says, is God mocked? God is not mocked. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Please notice this. Whatever a man sows, God's going to hammer him, is not what it says there. It says whatever a man sows, that's what he's going to reap. If you plant corn, you will eat corn because you planted it. Now, our verses do tell us of God's righteous, holy judgment as well. It's not like he just stands back and lets nature take its course. He's going to intervene and judge. But nonetheless, we learn lessons by reaping what we sowed if we're going to learn lessons. And it says when he speaks in his wrath and is just a little angry, well, it's this must, God is short-tempered, easy to provoke. This doesn't sound like the God I love. Well, wait a minute. Did you miss the prophecy of Jesus? Did you miss the middle of the psalm? I have set my king on my holy hill. What might that holy hill in Zion be? Anybody? Yes, Golgotha. I'm where the cross, the hill of Calvary, of Golgotha. I've set my king on my holy hill. You are my son. This day I've begotten you. Fear God spoke that from heaven over Jesus. We're to fear his wrath, and yet we're also to see that Jesus took the wrath that we would fear on himself and then be drawn to God, not pushed away from him. And they say, we'll cast his cords from us. It's interesting in Hosea, I don't think I gave this to you guys. Hosea 11.4, 4, 
I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck, and I stooped and fed them. God's heart is not to put a yoke around your neck and yank you down and burden you. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in part. My yoke is easy and my burden is light, and I am meek and lowly in part, and you will find rest for your souls. And how far did he stoop down? I stooped and fed them. He stooped down from heaven below you to lift you up. That's your Lord who loves you. That's the one who rebukes the self-righteous and the proud and the arrogant and the rebellious. Not because God can't wait to extract pain and do judgment. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That was in our study last week in Second Peter 3. So the prophecy of Jesus is in the midst of God's rebuke of the kings of the nations because this is how God works. He speaks strongly as he needs to to get our attention so that we will turn to him. You know, and when my little kids, when they were small and we'd cross a busy street, I would, well, we weren't crossing a busy street, I would say, take my hand. I'd put my finger down and my little, those little chubby little hands of a two and three year old would wrap around your finger and you'd walk across the street in a, in a, in my neighborhood with no cars. But if we were anywhere with this, with traffic and any danger, when I said, take my hand, I had their hand, their wrist. I had everything. I could yank them where I needed to take them to protect them. So God says, take my hand, but you got to know he's taking yours far more than you're reaching him. Psalm 3, a psalm of David. As Bill pointed out to me, and it's right in front of me, but I wasn't thinking about it till he pointed it out yesterday. <laughs> it's the first psalm of David that we read. How interesting, when he fled from Absalom, his son, most scholars believe when it's written there and it was passed down through the generations, we're to keep it as a part of Scripture, meaning we're confident, pretty confident, that this is when it was written and what it was for, and it's put there by the people who organized the psalms under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me and save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groanings. All night I make my bed swim. You know what that means. I'm crying so much. I drench my couch with my, I could have just read it. I drench my couch with my tears. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. So this is a bit of one of the imprecatory prayers where he calls judgment down on his enemies. That was Psalm 4, wasn't it? Well, remember that. We won't read it because we're going to get to it. And why did you wait till the end to stop me? (laughs) 
Well, I'm going to back up a little. Okay. Lord, how they've increased who troubled me. Many are those who rise up against me. Many are they who say of him, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke from the Lord, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you, are, you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people, Selah. So um, it also has that element in it that threw me, but he's fleeing from Absalom, his son. Now, there's some value here to talk about it for a minute. Is, is um, Absalom, David's son, who rebelled against him, slept with the concubines on the rooftop. In sec- this is in uh, 2 Samuel. After David had sinned with Bathsheba, God had said to him, you did it in secret, and I'm forgiving your sin, but the baby that's come from your adulterous relationship and uh, is going to die, and also I'm going to show my punishment for you that this is not good what you did. He's the king of Israel, and he killed a man and committed adultery, and he should have been killed. That's the law. But God had a covenant with David the sure mercies of David, that was not going to be broken because it shows all of us that there's no human you could pick who hasn't sinned in his heart just like David. And so the people who stumble that David could be the king that God comes from are people who have not yet learned just how deeply sinful every single one of us is. Every single one of us. I didn't say them. Us. And so David's going to face um, some discipline for the sake of Israel to see the truth about right and wrong and for God's glory to be kept intact. And he has a rebellious son. He has a lot of rebellious children because it's the fruit of kind of the way he went. And you go, Rick, man, on Father's Day, do you got to do this? (laughs) Well, wait a minute. We're not done. There's hope. Uh, David loved his son Absalom who rebelled against him and was trying to take over the kingdom and indeed his coup was taking hold and he was in the palace now and David's out in the wilderness and then there's the battle that's going to come and David says, just don't hurt Absalom, my son, I love him. But Absalom ended up getting killed in that battle and David was restored to his kingdom. And, 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 David loved his son who was rebellious, and he did not want him killed. But sometimes there's no easy way out on earth for some of the things that happen. Now, I'm not going to further explain that. If you don't know that, you haven't lived any life, and you just need to live more life. Sometimes there's no easy answers in the here and now. I'll just leave it there because I don't have time to develop it, and I wouldn't, maybe, maybe I don't know how. But our Father, our Heavenly Father, and our Lord and Savior Jesus willingly accepted the need to overcome our and God sent his son to die rather than protect his son from death. David was like, oh no, he was so 
scared for Absalom, so saddened when Absalom died that he was so mourning over the loss of Absalom that Joab, who wasn't a righteous guy but saw it clearly, said to him, you better stop your crying and get out there and greet the people who, who gave their lives in risk to save your kingdom and to save you or you'll lose everyone by the next day here tomorrow. What you're doing is not good. You're letting your own personal sorrow be bigger than the purpose God's given you in life. Now, you might say, and I might say, well, my own personal sorrow is the biggest thing that I have going. Does that sound good to you? There must, if there's a way out of that, if there is a way out of your personal sorrow being the biggest thing to you, you should take it. You should find it. You should make it the goal of your life in Christ to find a way to not let your personal sorrow be the biggest thing in your life. I'm not mad at you. I'm not trying to be a heavy-duty preacher. I tell you in the name of Jesus, this is truth of truth of truth. It's the only way to overcome being trapped in your own sorrow. It's the only way, and it's available to us. It doesn't mean you don't have real sorrow. But don't make your emotions, your feelings, your pain, don't make them your God. They will destroy you. You need help, and I need help for that. So the Heavenly Father and the Son gave himself willingly to overcome our rebellion. In David's case, the rebellious son had to die. The rebellion had to be dealt with. In our case of every human, the faithful son had to die. The faithful son of David had to die so that you and I, our heads could be lifted up. David's words in Psalm 3, verse, um, let me find it, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. You're not in sin because you need God to lift your head. You're not wrong because you need the Lord. It's okay to need him. What's not okay is to not need him. Psalm 4. Now, did I start reading through this? I read the whole psalm. <laughs> well, no, just hear me when I call. God of my righteousness, you've relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. I didn't read this. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Selah, which means just take time to ponder and meditate. Let it sink in. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate with your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who will say, who, who will show us any good? 
Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the seasons with their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. So keep your eyes on God. Again, David's conflict, the mocking, the doubting, the ruining of his reputation, the trash talking that he faced. Uh, you know, the word be angry, the number one usage of that word, the word meaning is tremble. It's like tremble, but don't sin. Like get shook up, but don't sin. <laughs> I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's a very interesting. You can ponder it and look it up more. He can let all these things that happen to him cause him to sin. Um, isn't that normal for us? We let what happens to us cause us to sin. As long as you have an excuse, that's exactly how it's going to go for the rest of your life. As long as you have an excuse for why you behave the way you behave, get mad when you get mad, that you have to later go back and say, you know, I'm sorry I was wrong. But if you say, but you made me, that's what, you know, not to the extreme is that the man who abuses a woman and, well, I'm sorry I hit you, but, you know, you made me do that. No, she did not. And I know abuse can go both ways, but you get the point. The point is, if you allow excuse, if I allow excuse for why I behave the way I do, I, you can count on this. You'll never change. And it won't be because of what everybody else is doing. This does not nullify that other people are doing things that aren't good, even to you. <laughs> but it's the only way out is the truth about yourself, about myself. So keep your eyes on God. Don't let what other people do cause you to sin. You know, he can let all this cause him to sin, or he can let God control him. God has the power to control us, but it ain't easy for us. So commune with your own heart. Talk to yourself is what commune with your own heart means, self-talk. So when you see someone walking down the street, maybe they're doing the right thing. <laughs> maybe they're just talking to themselves in a healthy way, and maybe not, but... The healthy way, in, in 1 Samuel 30, don't turn there because we're just going to go through something quick, but this is another, this is equal to the Absalom story in David's life. He's running from Saul, Saul with all his army that has gathered around him, and he has never taken action against Saul. He's even past the point where he cut off the corner of his robe, which was chapter 24, and he wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. But he gets discouraged and faint-hearted and feels like Saul is never going to stop chasing him until he kills him. So he runs to be with the Philistines, a certain Philistine king that actually embraces him. And he's doing stuff, you know, taking over other nations but not Israel. But the guy thinks he's fighting Israel, that he's his buddy. But then he's on his way home. He gets sent away from the battle from all the Philistines. And you'll just have to fill in these blanks later. He gets sent home to his town. It's called Ziklag. And when he gets there... The other marauders have come and burnt the town, taken all the possessions and all the wives and children with them. They haven't killed anybody. They just swooped up and took some other, you know, there's all these, all these different marauders. Is that a good word? What's another word? Guy going around. And, uh, well, some kids won't know the word marauders. But anyway, uh, bandits. And uh, so he, they get there, and all their people are gone, and their stuff is burnt. 
And David's men, because they weren't all these really great, glorious, faithful guys, they were discontented guys who some were great and some weren't. They, they, they started talking about stoning David. They were mad at him. He had done, I think, his going to the Philistines was clearly a wrong decision. You know, have you ever known that some really great leaders make bad decisions? Some really great dads make bad decisions. Some really great women make bad decisions. All people make bad decisions <laughs> sometimes. David made a bad decision, and they were with him, but now they're against him, and they're talking about stoning him. I mean, he's missing his wives and children too. So he's as broken as everybody else, but he's also facing the ire of his men. And it says they talked about killing him, and it says, but David, King James is great, encouraged himself in the Lord. New King James and others, David strengthened himself in the Lord. How did he do that? One, two, three, four, I know God, and that's a war. You know, no, David, he he could have had a better ending, but I just was off the top of my head. But um, David strengthened himself means he got with God. He selahed. <laughs> he backed away. He didn't try to convince anybody that it wasn't his fault. I mean, we don't know what he did, but it doesn't appear that he was interacting a lot with them. He pulled away, and he said, God, I mean, I don't know how to say it, okay, so just the best I can is, God, I know that you've made me a promise. I know that I belong to you. And even if I failed in this recent stuff, I know I still belong to you, and you're mine, and I'm yours. Lord, and I want you to give me, and what's more important isn't whether they stone me or not or how they feel about me. What's most important is that you get your glory and that we get our families back. What, what is it you want me to do? He strengthened himself in his relationship with God at his lowest point. He said, well, I can't do that. That's why I'm at my lowest point. When I'm at my lowest point, I can't do that. Well, I don't believe you. <laughs> I believe that God is bigger than your lowest point. Now, I don't know how he does that, but maybe just reading the word, the Psalms a bit, when you're at your lowest point is a good idea. And not just your favorite. Just start going through them. Get to where you get something that God speaks to you about. So David encourages himself in the Lord, and he goes and gets the ephod and the priest guy with him, and it's, he asks, uh, Lord, what should I do? And the Lord says, go get him. And he does, and everything works out, and not one person or their stuff was lost. And you might say, that's a fairy tale. Yeah. I don't know how to do that, Rick. Well, read the Psalms. If you read five Psalms a day and one proverb a day, you'll read all of them in a month doesn't mean you should do it every month that's people do that like if you have if you have some reading you want to do read five psalms a day in 30 days you've read them all so i would suggest while we're doing this that you do that and you can go back through them if we take too long or whatever so uh we will take too long we'll do more than five weeks so you know so psalm five and we're done can you believe it this one's about 80 minutes to do okay the chief musician with flutes, don't forget the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Give ear to my voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning I will direct it to you. 
and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out of the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those who rejoice, let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful to you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. David's prayer, looking up to God over everything that's happening with a view to the end of the story, which is the end for the righteous, those who are in God's kingdom, saved by grace, but nonetheless called righteous because we are robed in his righteousness. The end of the righteous and the end of the wicked. And if we don't see that, if we don't see the big picture, you and I cannot look at the big picture you kind of have to do this on a regular basis. I'm not going to say how often. I don't know. It could be 10 times one day. But you, you know, if you refuse to look at the big picture, notice I used a strong word. You can look at the big picture. That would be meditating. Lord, there's a day come in the song. There will be a day. There will be a day. There will be a day. I am absolutely in only one direction, and that day is coming. Whether I die in the next 10 minutes, 10 months, or 10 years, or not, no matter what happens between here and there, there is a day coming, and it will be the day that I have waited for my whole life, that I had times when I wasn't really sure if it was going to come. Understood, understood. There's times where you really aren't so sure. But if you refuse, to take some of your energy and focus there when you are being hammered, when things are confusing, when things are cluttered, if you say, no, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I want right now what I want. You will not, the kingdom of God will not make sense to you. You will be a frustrated Christian. You will say it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me. Well, it doesn't work for you because you're not following the path. I mean, I'm making that very blunt and blatant, but, you know, sometimes you just have to. You can back it off or you need to in your own life. And, I, and of course, of course we need God's help. Of course he's got to motivate us. Of course he's got to help us. I'm not talking about what he can do for you in this moment. First, I'm talking to you about 
what you and I need to choose to do. If we don't see that there's an end to the wicked and an end for the righteous and there's a full end game that's going to happen, and we won't look at that, I guarantee you nothing in the kingdom of God will make sense to you, and you will be frustrated. So if you're frustrated, there could be other things frustrating you right now because life happens. But I'm talking about a life of Christian frustration. Everything about Christianity, rather than blessing you and helping you, makes you kind of frustrated. Right? I've been there because my eyes go off the Lord. I haven't been there for long periods of time because I've always been around people that slugged me. (laughs) Smacked me in the face and said, Rick, stop which is good for me. Okay, they weren't that intense. Okay, so coupled with an understanding of the New Testament, we can pray, come, Lord Jesus, this earth needs your righteous judgment and deliverance. Is that true? This earth is sick, and it needs God's judgment, but it needs his righteousness, and a greater than David is here with us, and he hears us when we pray, but we also hear his prayer. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So we pray, Lord, save all the blind possible. We don't just say with the Old Testament David's moment, get them. That isn't really what James and John tried that. Lord, do you want us to, and they weren't, they were, they were, they were mad at Jesus and Samaritans, and they said, don't even come here if you're not going to spend the night and hang out with us and pay attention to us. If you're on your way to Jerusalem, then just don't even come. And, and James and John said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven like Elijah did? And Jesus probably went, oy vey. <laughs> he said, you don't know what kind of spirit you are, man. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So, you know, we are able to couple together God's judgment, his righteous, necessary judgment, and his cry for the wicked who can change, because I was in Ephesians chapter 2, we were enemies, we, the church, was enemies of God through wicked works. That's what we were. That's all you need to know, is <laughs> you were that person in your heart. And the fact that you were at some point so proud, somebody could be here right now this way. No, I'm not. You're just proving how arrogant you are. God wants to free you from your arrogance. Humble you so he can lift you up. So David, verse 7, notice verse 7. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. Beautiful. He comes to God because of God's mercy, his steadfast love. The same goodness of God that makes us able to come into his presence is the goodness of God that must judge sin fully and finally. And the proof of it entirely is when he did judge sin on Jesus Christ on the cross. All righteousness, it behooves us to fulfill all righteousness. Well, the righteous judgment of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. So when God disciplines you, it is not because he can't wait to take a pound of flesh out of you and cause you to squirm. When God disciplines you, it's his love for you 
to help you improve and do better and not go down a path that will destroy you because your punishment for your sin was taken by Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, he's faithful, I got for many years. God said he'd do this, so of course he's faithful to do it. But why is it God's justice? And some of you have been with me on this, but do it again. Why is it God's justice to forgive my sin? Because justice was paid on the cross for my sin. That's the justice that was served was Jesus paid it all. And when I see that, I will feel free to cry to God in my trouble. And sometimes it will take time to get out of your trouble. I'm not the magic man. But God will meet you. He will hear your cry. And I'm going to pause for a minute. And we'll sing a song to end from. It's uh, in King James, the way I'm going to sing it. So uh, it's Psalm 5. Mm-hmm.